Um, and it's great to see you. My name's Kyle, uh, if you missed that. And we, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a series on the book of Isaiah, talking about knowing the only true God, the one and only God from the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to take it and turn to that passage that was read, uh, just read in Isaiah 45. The passage that was just read in Isaiah 45. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the round tables for you. You can get up at any time, grab one. Uh, the folks on your aisle will let you buy. It's totally fine. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the larger context, so you're going to want to take open, uh, open up a Bible and look at it. Well, let me pray for us as we look at this passage. Lord, as we open up your word, we come together, but from many different places, some of us trusting that this is indeed your word and your word to us, and because it's your word to us, we come expectantly. Others of us come doubting, not so sure that you're there, that you love us. Uh, we're unsure of what to make of, of you, of this book, of this whole Christianity thing. Lord, wherever we come from, bruised, bored, burned, doubting, cynical, spiritual, excited. Wherever we're coming from, we need you. And we need you to convince us that you were there, that you were not silent, and that your word to us really is love. And so we ask that during this time, that would be made clear, that you would come in all your saving power. We pray these things in the name of your glorious Son. Amen. Well, it was early 2000s, and I was in a beautiful sanctuary in Memphis, Tennessee. I was in this sanctuary for a baccalaureate service. If you're unfamiliar with what a baccalaureate service is, it's a service separate from the graduation that celebrates the graduates. Now, my, my school, Extra Cool School, that's what I called it. It's actually called Evangelical Christian School, but I think Extra Cool School sounds better. Anybody else? Extra Cool School, we did not have a baccalaureate. Um, uh, but my brother, in the middle of high school, transferred to Memphis University School, this elite prep school. Uh, it was kind of where the blue bloods in town went. We were not that, and so we felt pretty out of place. Uh, we are there. My brother went to the school because they had a lacrosse team. Extra Cool School did not. You know, we stuck to the big three, baseball, football, and basketball. But the Blue Blood School, they had lacrosse. And so my brother went over to play lacrosse, not to study. So his academic performance was fine, but it wasn't great, and it was a difficult school. So we're sitting through this, this service, and it's, it's beautiful. The sanctuary is beautiful. We didn't know anyone there. We feel a bit out of place. Uh, and as these kind of services go... It wasn't the most thrilling thing. I think at this point in the service that I'm about to tell you about, uh, every member of my family, including my brother who was sitting next to me, was asleep. Uh, at some point in the service, though, they, they are giving away awards. Unlike Extra Cool School, where we have an award for everything, right? Because we're Christian and all that, so you've got to give lots of stuff away. So we had the Timothy Award, and my friend got that. We had the Bible Award. You know who got that. <laughs> it had nothing to do with character. That was the Timothy Award. Uh, 
They, they, but they, you know, they, at this place, they only, you know, we had attendance awards. We had all kinds of awards. At, at this school, they just gave four awards away. I was like, four awards? How are you going to just four awards away? So they're sitting there naming the names of these people. And they all have these kind of regal names with like three middle names in them, right? And we're sitting there and we're listening or sleeping, uh, whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden, we hear my brother's name for the art award, like one of four awards. <laughs> and everybody in my family at the row just looked at each other like this. <laughs> and we just sat there. And they had to call out his name a second time. And he was like, so he gets up and he goes up front, right? And, and it was just like this amazing experience because my brother was invited to come up to receive this award in this place where we felt like in no way did we feel like these were our people, that we should have been there. Uh, and yet, uh, my brother is invited to this kind of extraordinary thing. Um, in this text in Isaiah, we see this extraordinary invitation this amazing invitation, an invitation that seems kind of too good to be true to a people who don't think that they should be there, who you wouldn't expect should be able to be there. Turn to me, God says through the prophet Isaiah. Turn to me, Isaiah 45, 22, and be saved. All the ends of the earth. What I want to do this morning is look at the extent of this invitation, the urgency of this invitation, and the offer of this invitation, because I think in looking at those three things, we're going to find something of how amazing the invitation is. So first, the extent. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. This is an invitation that extends to, not just to some people, but to all people. Not just to Israel, but to the nations. It goes all the way to the ends of the earth. You see, this God, Israel's God, is a global God who is concerned for the nations. The ends of the earth. And, and his global purposes, his determination to extend his saving power and his salvation to the ends of the earth. This goes all the way back to the call of Abraham. In fact, the call of Abraham is actually echoed in this text. If you look at verse 23, you, you see God say, I myself have sworn, and he has said that before to Abraham in Genesis 22, I myself have sworn, and what did God swear? And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And so that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, Abraham's family, Abraham's people, they were called to call, blessed to bless, loved to love, and elected for the sake of the world. God has been fundamentally determined since the very beginning to save the world. God has been fundamentally determined since the very beginning to spread his saving power to the ends of the earth. 
He wants this invitation to go forward. But this text says more. God is not only determined to save the world, God is determined that his saving power would go forth through his people. It's very interesting in this text. In verse 14, we see that the nations turn to Israel. But then later on in verses 21 through 25, it says that the nations turn to the Lord. Now what's going on here? Well, do you see the connection? The way in which, the means through which the nations turn to the Lord is actually by coming to his people. It is through his people. In other words... These are people who are called to call, blessed to bless, loved to love, and elected for the world's sake. There's this story in the book of Acts where the risen Jesus Christ, he has died, he has risen again, he has met his apostles, and he is meeting with them, and it's right before his ascension. And they come to him at the very beginning of the book of Acts, and they have this question for him because they are excited because they finally get it. And they say, Lord! Is it at this time, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And do you know how Jesus responds? He says, it's not for you to know times and seasons, but go. It's not for you to know times and seasons, but go. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, wrong question. You're asking when, and the question you should be asking is who, and the answer is you. When are you going to restore the kingdom? No, that's, that's not the question. The question is, who am I going to restore, restore the kingdom through? And the answer is you, so go. Go to the ends of the earth. One of the biggest music festivals in the nation uh, is called Bonnaroo. It's in this little town in Tennessee, Manchester, Tennessee. Manchester, Tennessee has 10,000 people. Because it's in Tennessee, it also has 50 churches. Uh, Manchester, Tennessee, 10,000 people, 50 churches. When they decided to have this music festival there, perfect place because there's lots of open space and fields, they thought, this is going to be uh, easy and fine. So the organizers got together and they decided, you know, we, we're going to do this in a, a different way. We're not going to advertise. We're going to go low budget. We're just going to start this off small and see how it goes. So what they did was they got some bands. They're called jam bands in the biz. And they said, I want you to come and play at this show. Widespread panics, string cheese incident. Folks like that, you know, the leftover members of, of, uh, of um, Fish, uh, and if you don't know who any of these bands are, it's the Grateful Dead's children. So, they invite these bands, they line them up, and they said, hey, just promote that, just like tell your fans that you're going to be playing at this show. And so they did that. And they expected to have like, I don't know, 8,000 people or something like that. Instead, they had... 80,000 people, 80,000 people flooding in to this little 10,000-person town, and the roads got so clogged that it took people 24 hours to get in and out of the town, like in their cars. They weren't expecting that, right? 
Uh, people were just parked on the side of the road miles out of town and they just walked because they figured that that would be easier and it would take less time or whatever. But what's so fascinating about that to me is that they hosted this festival and the whole means through which they were going to get the word out and that 80,000 people came to this one place at this time was just by word of mouth. And you know what? God has the same strategy. He is bringing millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people across the globe and throughout time to one place, to the throne of his son, and he's doing so by word of mouth. You and me. We are a people who have been called to call, blessed to bless, loved to love, and elected for the sake of the world. And so, could it be that God is calling some of you in here today to go to distant lands, to the ends of the earth, to bring the good news to places where the good news has not taken root? Could it be that God is calling you to go to Saudi Arabia or Cambodia Could it be that God is calling you to go to some part of North Africa to bring the good news to people who have never heard it? I think it could be. But I'm not sure. I don't know that God is calling anyone in here in particular to do that. I know that he's calling his people to do it. I don't know that he's calling anyone in here in particular. But here's what I do know. I do know that he is calling you to go across the street, across the hall. I do know that he is calling you to go to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers here at the ends of the earth. We are as far from Jerusalem as you can get. And we are in a place where most people do not know the gospel. Do not know the story of Jesus and his love. Do not know of God's saving power. And he is calling us to bring the gospel here to people who do not know it. You know, we have been growing our attendances up as a church. And um, that's encouraging, that's exciting. And, uh, and I've had to ask the question, though, as that's happened, how much of this growth is just a, a reshuffling of the sheepfolds, and how much of it is new belief? Now, if you're coming to this church and you're already a Christian, then we are so glad you're here. And we hope that you find a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ here. We really do. But we want to be a people who are not just here to promote a deeper relationship with Jesus, deeper faith, but also new faith. We want to be a people who is bringing the gospel to people who do not know the Lord. And that is some of you in here I know. Some of you in here, you're coming from the outside. And you're wondering, are these my people? Is this me? You feel like my family did in that service. And you wonder, is it my place to walk up front? Did you hear? 
Did you hear that passage from Isaiah 56 that was read earlier? Let not the foreigner say. Let not the one who feels different say. Let not the one who is the outsider say, I will be separated from the Lord. You see, God's invitation is for you. He wants his salvation to come to you. To people who have never heard and who do not know, look at verse 20. Look where his invitation goes out to, who it goes out to. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors, you refugees of nations. And then he describes them. They have no knowledge of God, and they carry about wooden idols. These are people who don't know God, and therefore worship other gods. And he says it's to them. To them that he is calling his saving power, uh, he, is, he is bringing his saving power that he is inviting. You know, I've had to, as I've studied this text this week, I've been forced to ask a question that I'm forced to ask actually every once in a while that I should ask more often. And the question that I had to ask myself is this, Kyle, what people who don't know Jesus are you pursuing and praying for in relationship and desiring to come to know Jesus? And are there any? And I have to confess that there are times in my life where I have more of those, and there are times in my life where I have less. And this is one of those weeks where it was pretty convicting because this is one of those times where there are less and where it hasn't been on the forefront of my mind. What about you? Could you name two people? Two people that you are in real and regular relationship with who you are pursuing and praying for and you desire to see the grace of God come into their lives. Maybe before the end of the service, you could ask God to show you two people, to give you two people. And as you go, how are we to go? Because I think it's really important to notice how we are to go. Notice that this unbelieving world, this idolatrous world who does not know God, who carries about wooden idols, notice that they are not scorned, but they are welcomed. And that should be our posture as well. We should carry the posture of our Heavenly Father who treats the unbelieving world not with contempt, but with compassion, who exhibits not hostility, but hospitality. You see, we cannot undermine our proclamation with our posture. And we cannot diminish our message, which is full of grace, with an attitude which is full of judgmentalism. We should not expect unbelievers, you know, to act like Christians. Why should we ever expect that? But we should desire and empathetically desire them to see and to know Jesus But that's hard because, let's be honest, it's hard to bring the gospel to people who are different than us, culturally different, socioeconomically different. It's hard to uh, bring the uh, gospel to people who are religiously different from us. So how can we do that? How can we do that in a posture that is humble and meek and is full of empathy and love? Well, the answer is in verse 17. 
I want you to look at it. It says, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. Do you know what that means? It's not just the nations who need the saving power of God. It's God's people as well. And the only way in which we can go to a people who do not know God with empathy and compassion is to know that that we are in full need of salvation as well. Every moment of every hour, we need Jesus, not just at the beginning of our life, not just in the middle of our life, but every moment of life. There are a myriad of ways in which we need his saving power to come to us because we are broken and sinful and lost and ruined without him. I had a friend who was looking at getting LASIK surgery. I've told this before. It's been a while. Um, But he was looking at getting LASIK surgery, and he's going in, and he's checking it out. He's sitting there, and, and, and he got in that uncomfortable position where after he was waiting excitedly in the doctor's office for a while because he heard the surgery's easy, uh, no big deal. He had all these people that came with testimonials about how great it was, you know. He's never going to have to use his glasses anymore. And so he's sitting there in the doctor's uh, office, and the doctor comes in and gets really close to him, like really close, you know. Like kind of makes your throat kind of do weird things close when someone's that close to you that you don't know very well. And the doctor's right there, and they're looking eye to eye. And my friend looks at this doctor's eye who's about to perform this LASIK surgery on him, and he says, that's a contact lens. And then he goes, Doc, you have a contact lens. Why do you have a contact lens? You're about to perform LASIK surgery on me. Like, why do you have a contact lens? He goes, I wouldn't do that surgery. Too risky. (laughs) At that point, my friend said, check please, I'm out. You know, it's really hard to to sell something that you aren't actually participating in yourself. You know? And it's the same way with salvation. It's really hard to tell people that they need the saving power of God if we don't feel our own need for it ourselves. It's really hard to go and proclaim to others how they need, they need to come under the knife of Jesus' love, the loving knife of Jesus who comes and transforms us unless we are willing to undergo it ourselves and know our deep, deep, deep need for it. But need it, we do. And so does the world. Which brings us to the urgency of this invitation Look at verse 45, 20, or chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And notice how it goes on. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. Here there is this contrast in this chapter. And it's a contrast between the impotent idols, verse 20, and the all-sufficient God, verse 22. Where these idols which we make cannot save, the God who makes us can save us, verse 22. Only in the Lord, verse 24, only in the Lord shall it be said of me a righteous in strength. You see, God is all sufficient and salvation is in him and in nowhere else. And therefore, the idols that we look to and turn to cannot save. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with me? 
because the last time I checked, I, I didn't have a little wooden idol in my house. But of course, an idol is anything we look to to be and to do for us what only God can be and do for us. An idol is where we turn to to find ultimate security and safety and happiness and significance and satisfaction. And if you want to know where your idols are, just ask yourself the question, what is your greatest dream? What's the thing that you look to that you say, if I just had that, then life would be worth it? If I just had that, then life would be meaningful. If I would just had that, then I would know that, that everything is worth it and that I am enough. Or, conversely, look at your greatest nightmare. See, in that nightmare, you are going to lose something. Something is being taken away. What is it? That's your functional Lord. The thing that you think will rule you and protect you. And where do you run when that thing is being threatened? Where do you turn? Well, that's your functional Savior. These things are our gods, our idols, and, and we look to them to give us salvation, but they cannot save. All the wealth and possessions in the world cannot cure us or save us from death or loneliness. If you could ask Steve Jobs, I'd tell, him, uh, to tell you to. All the wealth in the world cannot save him from cancer. All the being kind in the world will not ensure that we have a good name. The right city or the right spouse or the right job will not protect us from ultimate boredom and feeling like our life is meaningful. And all the knowledge in the world will not keep you from feeling stupid or out of control. Just go to the university and ask one of the professors to be honest with you. It won't do it. Our idols cannot save us. And that's why clinging to them inevitably leads to shame. Look at verse 16. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. Why? Because when we cling to these idols as if they're going to be saved, as if they're going to save us, eventually we realize that, that they're not. And we've been played. It's, it's a Final Four time. Some of you got to watch it. I did not, except to do sermon research. That's the only reason I watched the Final Four, I promise. Uh, so one of, uh, I went to Auburn for a year, and, and we lost. Uh, and I can make fun of Auburn and Auburn fans because I went there for a year. So that's why I told you that. There's this video I saw of this guy. And he, at this point, I guess confused about the, the slight tint in orange and who was Auburn and who was Virginia. And he, he thought that Auburn won. And so he takes his beer, this big beer, and he throws it on top of his head. And he is taunting the camera, saying about like how great Auburn is and how wonderful they are. Well, like a few moments later, he realized that his team lost, right? And then he got so mad, he just started kicking chairs and throwing them, right? Um, my alma mater. Uh, you can see why I left. No, um, 
But, but there was this sense where, like, he was, he was boasting, he was so great, he was, he was putting all his stock in his team, and then he was kind of left out to dry. He was ashamed. It's as if the emperor had no clothes. You know the little store, uh, the, the story about the emperor and, and uh, the merchants come in from, from Italy, they're going to make uh, the emperor a great, a great gown, and... and uh, and it's invisible. And so the emperor asked people to come in. And it's like only those who really know can see it. But he knows how great it is. And other people say, oh, it looks great, emperor. It looks great. And so then he goes out and he's paraded around the streets naked until a little boy looks out and says, why is the emperor naked? And then everyone starts laughing and say, the emperor's naked, the emperor's naked. Eventually, the idols that we clothe ourselves with will be shown for what they are, futile. And we will be left naked and ashamed if those are the things that we are clinging to. The only way to not have that is to turn from these idols and to cling to the righteousness of Christ and be clothed in him. You see, because... Because God has promised to bring about a world without idols. That day is coming. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. See, one day, someday, everyone will recognize that all the idols are a sham and there's only salvation in one place. And his name is Jesus. And on that day, we will, either, we will either come to that acknowledgement joyfully and willingly, or we will come to that acknowledgement in great surprise and shame. But come to the acknowledgement we will. It's kind of like uh, maybe your dad had this phrase, my dad had it, you know, we can either do this the easy way or the hard way. And we can, either, we can either come to see that Jesus is Lord and there's salvation in no one else the easy, the easy way or the hard way. We can either humble ourselves, turn from the idols that we have made and cling to him now, or we can have them stripped from us then. This is an urgent message, and the world needs to hear it. We need to hear it, and we need to receive it over and over and over again because there's salvation in no one else. Which brings us to the offer of what is on offer. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. God is the all-sufficient one, and in him is everything that we need. Uh, The idols are not like partially helpful. They're not kind of helpful. Verse 20, they cannot save totally in any way, shape, or form. See, Israel was in, Israel was in danger of thinking that, that because they were in Babylon and now because the Assyrians were coming, that, that their God, maybe he wasn't that powerful. And so they could work him in with the other gods of Babylon uh, and kind of like kind of have a, a mix and match of them all. They would do a little saving, and Israel's God would do a little saving, and they would all contribute something to the pie. And we are in danger of thinking that as well. We're in danger of thinking that 
yes, God can provide some things for me. Uh, This Christian God can provide some things for me. But, you know, I also have to have a really good job and a really good name and a really satisfying spouse and a really, because God's not going to give me those things. I have to work it in. But Isaiah wants us to know that only in the Lord are salvation and strength, are righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord, that he is the all-sufficient one, and he gives us the righteousness which our hearts so long for. We don't call it righteousness anymore, of course, but it's what we're all after. Righteousness, this sense of being right with something, and I think just right, right in the world. We don't, we don't call it righteousness. We call it, as I've said before, and as David Zoll calls it, we call it being enough and feeling like we're enough. It, we're attentive enough and unique enough. We're enough of a parent or enough of a child. We're enough of a boss or enough of an employee. We are just enough. If we could just be enough and we are striving for this enoughness, but it is so elusive and we can never seem to get it. George Bernard Shaw in one of his plays said, the lives which we have have no use, no meaning, no purpose, and will fade out. You have to justify your existence or you will perish. And many of us feel that relentless pursuit to justify our existence, to feel like we are enough. And we will look anywhere and everywhere to try to do it, but we can never seem to attain it. All our, all our attempts to establish our own enoughness, our own righteousness, they seem to fall flat, but God offers it. God offers it. Whereas those who cling to worthless idols are put to shame, something else happens to those who cling to the Lord and turn to him. Verse 17, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Rather, verse 25, In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The idea of being justified is to be deemed right, to be deemed enough. And don't you want that? See, when you turn to the Lord, you find an enoughness, a righteousness that is not based on anything you are or anything you have or anything you do. It is... A life that is enough simply because you are loved by the one who is enough. It is a life, it is a justification that comes not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. Because you know the one who is enough. And he offers this righteousness. Don't you want it? Everybody wants it. Trust me. Just talk to him long enough. You'll hear it. Everybody wants this righteousness. He offers righteousness and he offers strength. Oh. There's so much of life where we feel so weak and inadequate. I feel so weak and inadequate. I'm not enough. 
And there are so many burdens that press down on us and that press down on you, and I know it, and I feel it, and I hear it from you, and they press down on your shoulders, and they're all around, and you think, how do I have the resources for this? I don't have the resources for this. I don't have the resources to parent this child. I don't have the resources for this relationship. I don't have the resources to to keep all these balls spinning in the air. I just don't, and I'm exhausted. And where am I going to get the strength for this? We don't have it. But he does. And he offers it, and we can rest in him. Turn to him and receive it. Let go. Lay, lay your deadly doing down. Your anxious fears and your burdens. Be okay to not be enough and to fail and to know that you are loved and that he has the world and that he has you and he has your life. That's good news. There was a young boy who was 15 His dad was a minister, but he had not become a Christian. He was searching everywhere to figure out who is this God and what's going on. It was a snowy morning. He opened the windows and the snowstorm had come. So he left his house that morning and instead of being able to make it to the church he was intending to go to because he was trying every one that he could nine miles away and he had heard that maybe he could find some some hope there, he he got turned down into this alley because the snowstorm and the wind were so bad. And he ended up in what we would call a kind of charismatic Methodist church, a really small one and really kind of hyper crazy to, in his mind. And he showed up there and there were only a dozen or so people there. And, uh, and the minister was snowed in and didn't come. So they just sat there kind of looking at their, uh, looking at their watches it was the late 18, or the mid-1800s. They're looking at their timepieces. They're waiting. And then finally, this kind of scrawny man who wasn't a minister gets up into the pulpit because he's like, somebody has to. And, and he goes, I think the guy was a tailor or a shoemaker, according to the boy. And he got up and he, he opened up to Isaiah 45, verse 22. And he read in the King James English, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He said the man, he didn't really have a lot to say about the text. He wasn't very educated, and so he just kind of stuck to it. But he, he said, it's really simple. All you got to do is look. It isn't difficult. It doesn't take a college degree. Any fool can look. But he said, many of you are looking to yourselves But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourself. Jesus says, look unto me. And then this man who didn't have a message prepared, who didn't know how to preach, he said, look unto me. I'm a sweating and a dropping of blood. Look unto me. I'm a hanging on the tree. Look unto me. I'm dead and I'm buried. Look unto me and rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look, look, look unto me. And then he turned and he looked right at the young boys, 15, sitting in the back of the, at the back of the room under the gallery. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. I wonder if he might say that to me or you if we were sitting there. 
Young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey my text, now, at this moment, you will be saved. And then, lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive, charismatic Methodist could shout, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do, but look and live. And at that moment, the most popular and greatest preacher of the 1800s, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, looked. And he lived. And he recounts, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not have much else to notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I almost looked my eyes away. And then and there the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. That moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus and of the simple faith which looks to him. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanciful, which would have been out of keeping with the joy of that hour. I thought I could have sprung from my seat in which I sat and called out with the wildest of those Methodists, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. You can too. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified, freed, and shall glorify looking not to themselves, but to him, they shall boast and wonder and awe and celebrate and rest. Consider that an invitation and take some time to reflect on it as we prepare to pray.